Um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna continue uh, in the book of Ephesians today. So if you have your have your Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter four. We finished chapter three kind of last week, and um, just wanna wanna say a few things about the beginning of, of chapter four. Um, this is going to be kind of a little bit of an odds and ends uh, message. Um, just there's a handful of things. Well, let's just read it, and, and then uh, and then we'll I'll start. Ephesians four one. Then I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthily of the calling in which you were called, with all humility and meekness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Being eager, being eager <clears throat> to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, I want to get through at least these first three verses um, today, and I'd like to get into talking about the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I want to get there. We're going to at least start with that. I mean, start that today. But there's some things in these first two verses. I, I was kind of contemplating whether I wanted to go over them quickly or spend some time there, but I just kind of felt like there were some things in these first two verses that, um, though they may appear to be rather straightforward, um, I think that they're easily and and probably often misunderstood. So um, I'm kind of going to just try to cover a few things and then move move on into talking about the unity of the Spirit. But Paul begins... um, he begins exhorting the Ephesians, and he does this several times in other of his books as well, to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. That's the way he, he says it often. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Uh, and maybe a better translation of that word worthy um, is becomingly or according to. Um, but either way. Um, if you read... If you read it slow enough, you, you might you might ask yourself the question, "What does it mean to walk?" I mean, it's kind of the, the kind of verse you read over real quickly, you know. But if 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 you stop for a minute, you, you might want to ask yourself, "What does it mean to walk worth, worthily of your calling?" And maybe even a better place to start than that is, "What is your calling?" Um, in approaching a scripture like this, I think the natural mind would probably first define our calling as something God expects. From us, God expects us to do or, or how he expects us to behave. And then from there, we assume that to walk worthy of that calling is to act accordingly. Kind of like, you know, guys, shape up. I've forgiven your sins. Now act like it. Kind of, you know, something like that. Now serve me, or, you know. Uh, and, and it's probably obvious to everyone here, but that's not what I understand that verse to be saying uh, at all. Um, to understand, uh, however, what it means to walk worthily of your calling, we have to understand what our calling is. And this is one of those words that you, um, I guess the, the body of Christ, I think, tends to individualize and therefore misunderstand. In other words, we bump into the word calling and we wanted to make it, we, all, we always want to make it about our personal calling, our personal mission, our unique assignment from God. 
And only twice, I did this word search, and only twice in the New Testament did I find this word. It's in there like 95 times, but only twice uh, did I find it having to do, being used in that way, and that was with, with Paul saying that uh, he was called by God an apostle. But in every other instance, and I believe the way it's used here, Paul is not talking about what he's called to do or what we are called to do or how we're called to function in his body, but, but really what we are called out from and called into. And that's really, I think, the, the, by far the more important... In fact, you'll never really understand what you're called to do if you don't first have a deep realization of what you're called out from and called into. And I think that I was thinking about this, but I think that our our calling is is uh, is best understood when we see it as the fulfillment of of the way that God called Abraham. Uh, Abraham's calling wasn't into a behavioral uh, change program. He wasn't called uh, to a quest for the Holy Grail. He he had a calling that was much more significant than anything like that. And it was out of his former country and kindred and father's house and unto an inheritance that God would show him. So he was called out of something and unto something that God had to show him. That's how God called Abraham, and that's how God calls you. He calls you out of one kind, one creation, one family, and into another kind, creation, family, an inheritance that only he can show you. Elsewhere uh, in the scriptures, Paul calls this the high calling of God in Christ, or the heavenly calling. It's a calling out from death. It's a calling out from the earth, out from the first man, and into the heavens, into Christ. It's a calling to leave one realm by, by uh, Jacob's ladder. You see, Jesus um, picks up that type and shadow from the story of Jacob in Genesis and tells Nathaniel, you'll see a ladder out of the one into the other. And it's a calling to abide in that other and, and, and live there progressively as it is shown to you. So the calling of God involves walking the length and the breadth and the width of this land called Christ that we've come to. It involves an altar, just like in Abraham's day, an altar that cuts you off from all that you formerly knew and and identified with and related to. And it involves a journey of faith where you come to the experience of the mind of the Lord. All of that was Abraham's journey in type and shadow, and it is ours in spirit and truth. It's an incredible parallel. If you uh, go back and read that story, a journey of leaving something behind, a journey of coming into something that he must make him see. And uh, that has become our... uh, Ours is the spiritual reality of which that testified. So uh, we, could, we could take a lot of time and review all of the uh, pertinent verses, but uh, that would take all the time today. And I think, I, I think if memory serves, I've, I've done that before with respect to calling at some point. So it's enough right now, I guess, just to say that your calling has less to do with how you specifically function and more to do with where you are 
what you are, and what is left behind. It's a heavenly calling. And, and if this heavenly calling is not first real to our soul, then I don't think you'll ever really function properly in the Lord's body anyway. And if truth be told, if, if this heavenly calling does become real to your soul, you won't even care how you do function. You'll only care that you're found in Him. So you are called of God to follow Christ. To follow, you know, Jesus would always say that, follow me. You know, come follow me. But, you know, you, what you're following Him into through is death, burial, and resurrection into this land called Christ. A land, an inheritance that must be revealed to your soul. You know, when Jesus would walk around and say to people, come follow me, come follow me, where was he leading them? You know, the natural mind says, through the cities of Judea, you know, through Galilee. I don't think so. I think the following was into his death, into a door out of one country, one kindred, one father's house, and onto heavenly ground. Into heavenly ground. A whole new land. A whole new land. Remember when Abraham, God says, Abraham, lift up your eyes and look. As far as you can see, this is the land that I have given you. It's like that with Christ. The question is how far can you see? The whole thing's been given. Now walk the length and the width and the breadth of it. Now look to the north and the south and the east and the west and, 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 and let me show you the Spirit. It's like the Spirit walks you through this land and teaches you the things that have been freely given. And you learn through... You, you learn as you see this inheritance what is of necessity left behind. Lot. There's not room in this land for Lot, even though there was room in the land for Lot. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so, uh, that being the case, to walk worthily or becomingly or whatever of your calling is to walk according to where you are, where you are not, what is real, what is no longer real, what has ceased to be. It, it's, you have left something behind, now let it fall from your heart. You have been baptized into his death, now come to reckon yourself dead. You've been raised up with him, now fix your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. You have been given the fullness of Christ, now put on this man through the renewing of the spirit of your mind. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5.25, since you live by the spirit, so too now walk by the spirit. Walk where you are. Live by this life. Live according to this calling. And then when Paul mentions humility, meekness, long-suffering, love, and, and you can understand then that these aren't the obligatory deeds of the flesh that correspond to your personal assignment. These are the fruits of his spirit that grow from the seed that he has given you. These are the things that grow in the land that you are in. This is the produce of the land. Don't, don't forget when you read these kinds of words, don't forget what Paul has just told us. 
at the end of chapter 3, remember he just finished talking about how uh, we are being empowered by his spirit in the inner man. And then he says Christ dwells in the heart by faith. And then he says that we are being filled up to the fullness of God. And then he says the one who does exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think through the power that works within us. Paul ends chapter 3 like that and then starts chapter 4 with the word therefore. So he's not making this huge jump from the power of the Spirit back to works of the flesh here. He's carrying on with what he has been saying. I mean, you all know that in, in, in the original, this wasn't divided up into chapter. It wasn't like a pause between chapter 3 and chapter 4. This is just one letter. And, and so I would summarize this section kind of like this. Paul says, Ephesian people, I am praying for you. Here's how I'm praying. I'm praying that you would be empowered by God's Spirit in your soul so that Christ might actually operate in you by faith, that Christ might actually define all things and motivate all things and empower you by faith, and so that you would be rooted and grounded in the love of God, which is the Son that He has given you, rooted and grounded in what God has given you so that in every way you would be filled up to all the fullness of God, that all that God has deposited in your soul, that you would reap the good of it, walk in the reality of it, experience the substance of it, and He will do it. And He will do it, though. He would do it exceedingly abundantly more than you could ask or think, but He will do it according to the power that is working within you. Therefore, since this is your calling, since this is what you're called to, walk in it. Walk in it, bear the fruit of it, Deal with one another according to the reality of it. So while we're kind of on that uh, on the subject, uh, I I thought to take kind of a little bit of a it's not really a rabbit trail because it has to do with this verse, but it's just kind of like a, a I don't know a parenthetical comment here. Um, I'd like to say a few things about verses like these in the New Testament. It's it's almost always. It's almost always the case when somebody starts to realize the reality of the New Covenant that they trip over verses like this. And what I mean, what I mean by that is you begin to understand the cross. You, 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 uh, you, ne you ne uh, necessarily then you start to recognize that in the flesh dwells no good thing. You see that God is tr not trying to just get you to behave Better. God has crucified you with his Son, and salvation, therefore, isn't a second chance. It's the end of one man, and it's the increase of another. And all of that begins to, to become very clear to your heart. It begins to hit you and, 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 and hit you like a spiritual brick across the face. And, 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 it, and it, it starts to be so clear what Jesus said when he meant, apart from me, I can do nothing. And what Paul meant when he said, there's... There is no one who does good, not even one. And what Isaiah said meant when he said, um, all of your righteousness is filthy rags. All of that begins to become very clear to your heart because there's this division. There's this division that has worked in your heart through seeing the cross, a division between the living and the dead. There it is. I mean, you can't, it, it's, it's, it's shown to you by the Spirit of God. And you're amazed and you're shocked and the reality of it is is. It's everywhere you look in, in Scripture, 
until inevitably at some point you come across a portion of scripture where it seems like Paul or John or Peter is forgetting what they've already said about the cross and about the flesh dwelling no good thing and all of that and now is giving you a list of things to do and not to do. And it's confusing. You come upon a verse like that and it says, you know, maybe it says put on humility and gentleness and brotherly kindness or it says submit to your rulers or it says put off evil desires and envy and lust and greed and and then you're then you're it's like it's like the religious glasses come right back on, you know, and uh, you don't know what to do with it. You kind of get stuck in this confusion, and you think, Paul, you just told me that I could do nothing. You just said that I don't live, but Christ lives in me. You just said, not I, but the one who mightily works in me. And now are you telling me what to do to please God? I don't get it. I don't get it. So I thought I would kind of take this little parenthetical thing here in the middle and try to explain, because you'll bump into these, usually at the end of the epistles, these, these, these um, um, I don't know, admonitions or injunctions to, to seemingly live a certain way. And, and in my opinion, verses like that fall into two, um, this isn't perfectly clean, but fall into two, two categories. Um, I'm going to summarize them first and then I'll, then I'll explain them a little more fully. Uh, most often, Paul is encouraging believers to learn to walk in the Spirit and bear the fruit of the Spirit since they live by the Spirit. In other words, he's telling them to put on what they already have and to put off what God has already put away. And this by the renewing of the mind, by the knowing of the truth. And then sometimes the other category, Paul is dealing with people according to what I would call stewardship of their natural vessel. And I'll try to explain a little bit. In the first case, Paul is aware that believers have the person of Christ residing in their soul. And so often the problem is not what, it's not what they've been given by God, but it is knowing and abiding in what they've been given. And, and in this category or in these instances Paul tells the church to put on but they're putting on what they've been given they're putting on what's already in them and to put off what is dead and again both of those happen in the context you'll see it in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 and Second uh, Corinthians uh, 3 you'll, you'll, you're putting on uh, what what God has already given to you in Christ. It's like a person that has a warm coat, you know, like a warm winter coat going out into the cold of winter with the coat over their arm. It's not a matter of lack. It's a matter of knowing and living in the good of what you have. And so Paul says, for Pete's sake, put that coat on. You have it right there on your arm. Putting on Christ is, is not as easy, obviously, as putting on a coat because in order for us to appropriate the life that we've been given, we must begin to see by the light of that life. We put on what we have, not when we receive it, but when we begin to see clearly what we've been given. We put on what we have only when it is revealed to us. And this is the sense in which it, you'll see Paul talking to... Uh, Ephesus later on in the same chapter, Ephesians 4, um, 22 through 24, Paul's going to tell the church that they need to lay aside the old man, which is corrupted according to deceitful lusts, and put on the new man, which has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. How? Verse 23. 
and by the renewing of the spirit of the mind. So this isn't a work of the flesh. This is, this is an effect of the spirit. And if you don't have firmly in your heart the foundational reality of the cross, you could read this verse and, and think that putting off the old man is, is one of the things on God's to-do list for you to do today. But anyone that has seen the cross comes to the reality that you can only put him off because God has put him away. And so you're putting him off as you become aware of the truth that God has put him away. In other words, what God has, has destroyed from his sight is washed from your soul as truth bears in upon it. God's finished work catches up in your experience when truth shows it to be real. And you can only put on Christ because he lives in you. Knowing the truth here is the key. It's like that, you know, we've been ta- I've been talking about this, and this, uh, this is going off my notes, so this is a bunny trail of the parenthetical comment, but it's like that in the, uh, in the tabernacle. God finishes the work at the brazen altar. It's there done, but the labor is then there to, to wash from your soul what God has destroyed from his sight. The laver is there to, to cleanse, as it says in Hebrews, the conscience, to remove from your awareness what God has forever removed from himself. So truth is the key. Truth is the element. Knowing the truth. Jesus says to those who believe in him, if you know the truth, if you abide in my word, then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. You see, truth is the most powerful thing in the universe. Because when it, not natural truth, it's not going to help you to know E equals MC squared or something. I mean, not spiritually at least. But spiritually speaking, knowing the truth brings you into the experience and the good of and the power of what God has done. And so, from here, uh, in Ephesians, knowing the truth, renewing the mind, Christ revealed, whatever way you want to say it, is how Paul can then say, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you. He's not describing self-discipline and atom improvement here. He's describing the renewing of the spirit of your mind whereby what God has cut away from himself begins to be put away from you. It's exactly the same thing he says in Colossians chapter 2 and 3. Paul ends chapter 2 by telling us that self-made religion, severe discipline, harsh treatment of the body have the appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, you can't beat the flesh with the flesh. You can't free yourself from the flesh by the flesh. Well then, what does have the value, have, have value against fleshly indulgence? And so he starts chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, mind the things above. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And whenever Christ, your life is revealed, then you are revealed. What else? Verse 9. You have laid aside the old man with his evil practices and put on the new man who was being renewed to a true knowledge. 
truth. Here it is again, the laver. Appropriating to your heart what God has already appropriated to you in Christ. Showing to your soul what God has already finished. You've laid aside the old man. You are being renewed according to the image of the one who created him. Here again, truth applying to your soul, the renewing of the mind. And then it's only in this way that he then goes on to say, right in this context, right in the next verse, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These aren't the fruits of your discipline. These are the fruits of the, of the man that you are putting on. These are the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of you acting like the Spirit fruit of the new man, and therefore you can put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Again, this is the fruit of the old being put away. So any good work in the new covenant is not the work of the law, and it's not the work of the flesh, but it is a work of faith, which is what James is all about, the book of James, a work of faith. It is the fruit that grows out from the seed that God planted in your soul, and it works in you by faith. It works in you by the mind of the Lord. And that, that's the, the first category of what people call sometimes the do's and the don'ts of the, new, of the New Testament. The do's and the don'ts. We're told to walk in the Spirit since we are born of the Spirit. We're told to put on what we are and put off what we no longer are through the revealing of Christ, through the true knowledge of God, through faith working in the soul, through the renewing of the mind. You know, it, it, there's a lot of different ways that the Bible describes the power of truth working in your soul. But what it amounts to is... Uh, what it amounts to is faith catching you up to God's finished work. So the other category, though, is, is what I call stewardship of your natural vessel. It, it's, there's several scriptures that have to do, that are kind of, you could, I guess you could call them do's and don'ts. These are the verses where, where you read things like submit to governing authorities and don't get drunk with wine and don't bring lawsuits against believers and live at peace with those around you. To understand where these scriptures are coming from, you have to realize that Christ being formed in you, life being for, Christ's life being formed in you will transform your nature, will transform your mind, will transform character, everything internal. But Christ being formed in you doesn't, doesn't make you a better tennis player. You know, the renewing of the mind does not control how far down your foot goes on the gas pedal. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't force you to pay your taxes. There's no scripture that says, for the life of Christ constrains me to pay my taxes. It doesn't really work that way. And it might totally reset your value system so that you do pay your taxes. You see, spiritual growth never makes you a good cook or makes it so that you don't have to brush your teeth. There are some things that are just purely natural. They'll never be other than natural. And, and, and so, because of that, practical wisdom, practical stewardship of your natural body comes into play. The law is done away with in Christ. And we live by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Nevertheless, Paul says, 
Don't let your freedom in Christ to be an occasion for the flesh. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. You're free from the law because you live by the Spirit. Nevertheless, Paul says, I will not eat meat sacrificed to idols because it causes my brother to stumble. I will not rebel against civil authorities of the land because it casts shame upon Christ, who I claim to be my Lord. I will avoid the appearance of evil so that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will not be a stumbling block to any. And so forth and so on. See, my soul belongs to Christ and he is conforming the soul to his image. My body, however, and I, I suppose ultimately belongs to Christ as well, but it's in Akron, Ohio. And therefore, I'm going to pay city taxes. And I'm going to bring my dog inside when he's barking at the neighbors. And I'm going to, li- I'm going to work for a living, you know. My point is that there are some things, you render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God's what is, what is God's. Some things are only ever natural. Um, so my whole desire for, for sharing that was, was not, you know, these categories of do's and don'ts is not academic. Uh, it's so that you don't get tripped up when you read those kinds of scriptures. I can't tell you how, how many people have come to me uh, and, and said something like this to me. Jason, I was reading Romans 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and I was just seeing the reality of being dead with Christ and now we are walking in the newness of his life and how we can't, can't do the law on the flesh and how you know, we walk in the, spirit, the law of the spirit of life. And then I got to Romans 13 and it just really threw me off. It, just, it seemed like God was, you know... Paul was giving me this list of instructions. Or they say the same thing about Galatians or Ephesians or whatever. So I shared that so, so that you will understand that these sorts of scriptures, uh, they are perfectly in line with the gospel as a whole. But you, you don't really understand them. You don't understand Ephesians 5 unless you have the spiritual understanding of Ephesians 1 through 4 working in you. You don't, you don't understand Romans 13 unless... Uh, in the way that it was attended, at least, unless Romans 5 through 8 is, is a foundational reality of your heart. And uh, so anyway, with that, that's the end of my little parentheses there. With all of that said, uh, I want to say something about the unity of the Spirit. Paul says here that we should be eager or zealous, which is a better translation than diligent, it's just really eager or zealous to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And once again, we shouldn't really discuss preserving the unity of the Spirit until we know what the unity of the Spirit is. Unity is, is, a, is a, real common, uh, a real common word in the body of Christ. It's, you hear it uh, mentioned quite often. A lot of churches and Christian organizations uh, are doing all that they can think of to promote unity. But uh, unfortunately, unity for many people has to do with an agreement or a harmony in the flesh. It has to do with peace for many people in the natural realm. We think it's, we think it's agreement on doctrine or tolerance with different worship styles or putting up with discrepancies in interpretations of scripture or maybe we just think it means plain old getting along with each other 
But that's not the unity that Paul's talking about. The unity that Paul speaks of here is first and foremost, it is, it, is, it is a spiritual reality. It's not a natural reality of any kind. It's not natural minds agreeing on doctrine. It's not natural bodies sharing a building. It's not natural personalities finding common ground. It's not natural ambitions seeking common goals. It's not natural anything. It's just not natural. What Paul describes here is oneness of spirit, unity of spirit. It is a spiritual fact that was worked in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It is one body sharing one spirit. And you'll find that in the very next verse. One body with one spirit. That's the unity he's talking about. Therefore, it isn't anything that man could ever produce with any amount of effort or any number of committees. Why? Because because not only is it a spiritual reality, it's already done. We're not trying to create the unity of the Spirit. This verse says to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Preserve the unity of the Spirit. Keep the unity of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of Christ in each of us is already one with himself. Now, don't go screw it up in the flesh. That's what he's saying. The one who has joined himself to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. The one who has joined himself to the Lord has become one spirit. That's a fact. That is finished. And yet, if we remain ignorant of that one life, if we remain ignorant of the truth, then our ideas about truth, life, religion, purpose, doctrine, even our ideas about unity will divide us. They are bound to put asunder what God has brought together. What I'm trying to say is that the body of Christ is one by definition. Somewhere I can't remember where it says, we have all, is it, is it Romans 12 maybe? We have all been made to drink of one spirit. We are all members of one another. This is a spiritual fact. This isn't a, a program or a goal that we're trying to achieve. This is a spiritual fact. Unity isn't something we ever need to, re, need to create by any means whatsoever. It is something that must be realized, known, walked in, and thereby preserved, kept, preserved. It is something that God has done in Christ and which we experience more and more and more when all of us come to the unity of the faith, the unity of the mind of the Lord, one judgment, the true knowledge of the Son of God. And I'm, skip, I'm getting ahead of myself because that's what it goes on to say in Ephesians 4.13. A mature man, remember a mature man that comes to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. One faith. And that's in that list too. And that's why... I'm just going to kind of introduce this unity thing here and then we'll, we'll get into more next time. But the body of Christ is one by definition. So unity is what Paul has already described in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of this book. It's one new man. Flesh left behind. Christ as the resurrection and the life of all who live. One temple of God, one habitation of God. That's unity. Now Paul is telling us to preserve in the church what God has established in Christ. 
So in humility and gentleness, be zealous to keep together what God has brought together in and by Christ. That's what he's saying. Keep together what God has brought together by destroying the flesh. And to whatever extent we bring the flesh back into this picture, it is there that we have disunity. To whatever extent we think by the mind of the flesh, act by the mind of the flesh, are motivated, whatever, by flesh, it's when we bring what doesn't belong into this relationship back in, that is where we divide. We'll divide there over doctrines, we'll divide there over personalities, we'll divide there over every... Con I mean, just look at the church. Every conceivable thing that can divide the flesh will divide the church. To whatever extent flesh is how we relate. And I don't need to prove that to you because we've proved it to ourselves. And someone, you know, someone might say, how, how in the world then can we separate or divide the body of Christ if God has made it from one spirit? Well, again, we can't, we can't as a matter of fact, but we can as a matter of experience or fellowship. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about trying to get along in the flesh because we're one in the spirit. I'm talking about... Uh, now, that has its place. I don't, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not, but I'm not really talking about tolerating this or, or overlooking that. It's quite possible to be tolerating a whole lot in the name of unity and still have no true experience of the unity of the Spirit. Because the unity of the Spirit is only really known in truth. Jesus says, those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and truth. There's no genuine experience of unity aside from a genuine comprehension of the truth of the Spirit, the, tr the, the truth as it is in Christ. So what I'm talking about here is, is, the, is the, uh, the fact of the matter that we are one body, one spirit, one all these ones that he goes on to list in the next few verses. And I'll leave them alone for this week. But... We come to, Philippians is full of this, we come to one mind, one judgment, one expectation, one faith, because we are all one spirit. I'm not talking about a false unity in the flesh, a false unity in a lie. I'm talking about experiencing the true unity that is given of God and realized as Christ our life is revealed. So I'm going to stop there for this week because I, I can't say much more without getting into something I won't be able to finish. So, amen. Let's pray.